0: So again, we see that this food source has been engineered as a particular type of test. God tells the people to gather only enough for one omer per person. Apparently, an omer is about two liters. You have to gather it early in the morning because it disappears in the sun and heat of the day. And you can't store it overnight because it spoils and breeds maggots. So this is literally a case of living day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, by design. And of course some people couldn't handle that. They tried to ration it just in case God didn't show up to provide the food they needed the next day. People are slow to learn, and people are slow to trust in the Lord. But thankfully, God is patient.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. People are slow to learn. Amen. I identify with that statement. But thanks be to God, the Lord is patient. He teaches us, he trains us, and he tests us. God doesn't just save us, he remakes us and restores us to the people we were originally created and intended to be. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
0: Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 16. I mentioned in the last episode that there is no such thing as an untried faith. That's a quote actually from J Alec Motyer that comes from chapter 15, but it applies just as well to chapter 16 and chapter 17 and to quite a number of chapters in this story moving forward. God saves the people of Israel and then immediately begins to teach and try them. And I think it's important for us to take note of that. There is a great distance to be traveled between the waters of baptism and the gates of the celestial city. As Brother Job said, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who indeed? Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt! When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. At the end of chapter 15, of course, you remember the people were desperately thirsty. Water was heavy and you could only carry so much, and they were three days in the desert without finding a sufficient water source. So they were in real and immediate danger. But as we saw in that story, God provided for his people. That should have established something of a pattern in the minds of the Israelites. They should have realized that this God who was able to defeat Pharaoh and able to send plagues on the whole land of Egypt and able to part seas and able to make bitter water sweet, this God also ought to be able to provide food in the wilderness for those who trust him. That should have been the conclusion that the people came to. But of course, human beings are slow to learn. So the people grumbled and they exaggerated the pleasures that they had left behind. We need to hear that too. Remember, we are Israel. These stories were written down for our instruction. And we need to know that sin always looks better in the rearview mirror. And so it is here. Remember all the meat we used to eat back in Egypt? Oh, times were good back then, weren't they? How soon we forget. We pick up the story at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day... When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumblings that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So again, this whole food distribution system has been designed by God as a giant test. He will portion out their food in single servings. That means that they're going to have to trust him every day. That means that they're going to have to obey him even against their natural inclinations. These people were farmers. Farmers know that you don't just go out and harvest one day's worth of food. That is wildly inefficient. More than that, it is dangerous. What if the food doesn't come tomorrow? Doesn't God know that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? This was counterintuitive, which of course is kind of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And that is what God wants them to learn how to do. So this is all a test. This is Faith Walking 101. Now, the manna is promised every day, except, of course, for the seventh day. On that day, they will rest and eat the extra portion they gathered on the sixth day. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the manna will be a daily occurrence, six days out of seven, for the next 40 years, whereas the evening meat that Moses mentions in verse 8 is a sort of one-off. It's a special provision that will be very occasional in nature. We should also notice that this is the first time in the entire Bible where the phrase, the glory of the Lord, is used. You can see that in verse 7. It's always a good idea to notice the first use of an important biblical phrase. Very often, it is the first use of the phrase and the context for the first use of the phrase That helps us understand what the phrase means. So Nahum Sarnas is here. This is the first biblical usage of the seminal Hebrew phrase Kavod Yahweh, the glory of the Lord. The reference here is not to any visible symbol as in verse 10, but to the manifestation of God's essential nature as he caringly and beneficently provides for his people's needs, closed quote. So the glory of the Lord refers to a powerful, tangible, impactful manifestation of God's essential nature. And here it has to do with his ability and desire to provide for his people and to be trusted to provide for his people. That's good to know. We pick up the story in verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. that the glory of the Lord is related to what can be known about God's essential nature through the miraculous provision of food in the wilderness. Store that away for future use. Verse 11. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. Now, we'll just pause here briefly to comment on these two miraculous provisions. As for the quail, apparently, even to this day, massive flocks of quail migrate over the Sinai Peninsula, moving from southern Europe to Arabia and then back again. Uh, They fly north across Sinai during March and April, which is when this story takes place. These birds are a food source even today for the people living in the area. They fly low and they fly hard and they tend to land for the night completely spent and exhausted, which makes them extraordinarily easy to catch. Local experts say that a small boy with a net can easily catch enough to feed his family. So, God providentially arranges for a flock of exhausted quail to land in the camp, and this provides a very welcome feast for all the hungry people. As for the manna, many commentators identify this with a naturally occurring phenomenon in the region that apparently is still eaten, although in much smaller quantities, still today. So, for example, R. Alan Cole says, this description and its quality of disappearing in the heat of the sun when collected by ants prove almost conclusively that it was the Arabic man, a globular exudation of two types of scale insects living on twigs of tamarisk. This substance is chemically composed of natural sugars and pectin and is found today only in, in the southwestern part of the Sinai Peninsula after the rains of spring, closed quote. So it may be that God simply amplified an existing natural phenomenon in order to provide food for his people. It may be that, or it may be something else. As Cole says, the naturally occurring manna is only available in the spring, whereas this manna was available six days a week for 40 years. So even if God made use of something pre-existing in nature. It is obvious that he has supernaturally involved himself in the process in order to provide a consistent and nutritious food source in the desert for an unusually large number of entirely dependent people. This is a miracle, no matter how you slice it. Hey,
1: Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because while I agree that this was definitely a miracle, it... ...feels to me like a very different kind of miracle than the ones we saw during the exodus itself. This isn't the angel of death going through the land of Egypt and killing the firstborn son of every person and every animal in the entire country. This is a flock of quail landing for the night in a convenient spot. This is a naturally occurring exudation, as you put it, being found in larger and more stable quantities than it normally would, but let's be honest that's a different kind of miracle than we were talking about just a couple of chapters ago. This feels kind of less spectacular
0: and more, I don't know, ordinary, if I can use that term. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that impression is intentional. In Egypt, the ten plagues were designed as a power encounter between God and Pharaoh and between God and the entire Egyptian religious system. God was making a statement in the heart of the world's only superpower at the time, And he was writing that statement in bold capital letters. So, yes, all the miracles had a spectacular quality to them. But here at this point in the story, he is not impressing the nations. He is teaching his people. So the design is different because the purpose is different. Here, God is working through ordinary means to teach the people that they can trust him. He will provide. He will meet their needs. He will give them their daily bread. Yeah, literally. I I love the idea that these are teaching
1: miracles. The manna was a test of faith. They had to trust that it would show up every day at the
0: appointed time. Yeah, and then on the sixth day they had to trust that it wouldn't rot like it did on all the other days so that they could have some on the seventh day without having to gather it. So it was definitely a test of faith from start to finish.
1: So the miracles in this chapter are different than the miracles in the earlier chapters because there was a different audience and a different purpose. Is that it?
0: Yeah, exactly. God isn't a magician. He doesn't put on a show just for the fun of it. He is always communicating. And that's why miracles are often called signs in the New Testament. If you want to understand them, you have to pay attention to the point that is being made. Some of us, however, are distracted by the sparkle. (laughs) Okay, true enough. That is well and helpfully said. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 14. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So again, we see that this food source has been engineered as a particular type of test. God tells the people to gather only enough for one omer per person. Apparently, an omer is about two liters. You have to gather it early in the morning because it disappears in the sun and heat of the day. And you can't store it overnight because it spoils and breeds maggots. So this is literally a case of living day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, by design. And, of course, some people couldn't handle that. They tried to ration it just in case God didn't show up to provide the food they needed the next day. People are slow to learn, and people are slow to trust in the Lord. But thankfully, God is patient. We Pick up the story in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside, to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So the idea here is that on the sixth day, God will cause there to be an abundant harvest, sufficient for everyone to gather twice their personal allotment. Enough for today and enough for tomorrow. Now, normally the bread would spoil overnight, but this time, miraculously, it does not. This time it will stay fresh and supply meals that will not need to be prepared on the Sabbath day. Now, by the way, Jewish people still follow a version of this tradition today. Two loaves of bread are set out on the evening of the Sabbath so that they can be eaten without the work of preparation on the following day. God is trying to teach his people that life is about more than work. People need rest. People need worship. You were made for more than labor. And with just a little bit of planning and forethought, Rest and worship can be and should be incorporated into everyone's weekly schedule. That was the plan. However, as we see in verse 27, not everyone was down with the plan. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, "'How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days.' Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the command to remain each of you in his place was not a commandment against movement as the Pharisees understood it in Jesus' day. Rather, it was a commandment against labor. Don't go out to harvest. Prepare ahead and enjoy the day. Rest and worship. That was the idea. So the people rested on the seventh day. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Now, we've talked already in this series about the shape and rhythm of biblical faith. We are a people gathered around the redeeming work of Almighty God. So at the heart of our worship, there is a work of power, a work of mercy, a work of grace that is then given authoritative interpretation in the scriptures. These works mean something, and the meaning is provided alongside of the work itself, And then the work and the meaning is commemorated in some sort of appropriate way, some sort of rite or festival or meal. That's what we're seeing here. Part of how God saved the people was by providing for them the bread from heaven. And this was something they needed to remember. This was to be connected with God's glory, with his essential nature. And so they put some of the manna in a jar within the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Douglas Stewart sees all of that, but also sees something else that I think we need to see. He says, moreover, God was teaching them a concept. He was the ultimate provider, the one who from heaven gave them not necessarily what they expected, but what they really needed. Thus, his satisfying them with the bread of heaven becomes a theme of scripture that not only refers to to the manna described in this account, but to the ultimate provision of eternal sustenance, Christ himself. Closed quote. And thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to ask a
1: question about something that you didn't cover in the program audio. Right at the end of chapter 16, it says, they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Okay, Are we to understand from that that the manna stopped as soon as
0: they entered the promised land? Yes, uh, we didn't cover that in the program audio, as you say, but that's a helpful thing for us to see. Miracles are never intended to replace human effort and common grace. You're not supposed to pray to God for miraculous help to pass your finite exam. You're supposed to study for it. (laughs) You're not supposed to pray for God to bring you the morning paper. You need to get yourself help out of bed. Put your slippers on and go get it for yourself. God is not your butler, and he's not your court magician. He is God, and he does as he pleases. So again, this goes back to purpose. The purpose of the miracle of the manna was, first of all, to keep the people alive in a generally inhospitable environment. And then secondly, to teach them the principles of faith and dependence. It was like a class that God enrolled them in. But once they graduated, the class was over and it was time for them to move on. Plus, once they entered the land, they could get supplies by fulfilling their mission to displace the Canaanites and then later by planting fields and growing crops like regular people do. They mustn't get addicted to miraculous provision.
1: All right, that's helpful. So people who can
0: are supposed to feed themselves. Yeah, in fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So miracles are not supposed to replace normal hard work and human industry. If you can work, then you should.
1: Well, speaking of hard work and feeding ourselves, I've heard you talk a number of times about a Bible reading plan that you use that takes you through the whole Bible every year Can you tell us more about that? Because we are very early on in January here, and I know that many people make a resolution at this time of year to try to read the entire Bible, but that can be kind of daunting and difficult to keep.
0: Yeah, and that's really one of the main reasons why we began the End of the Word podcast in the first place. Most Bible reading plans will have you reading about four chapters of the Bible every day. That's just what it takes to make it through the whole Bible in a calendar year. Now, if you're an average reader in terms of speed, that translates to about 20 minutes a day. Uh, but for some, it's hard to find that 20 minutes. And for others who maybe read a little slower or who are always getting sidetracked on some kind of bunny trail. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> well, then uh, it can be difficult to get through all four chapters. So the End of the Word podcast was designed to help with that. I always say to people... You read one or two chapters yourself, and then we'll read one or two chapters to you as you drive to work or walk the dog or wash the dishes or whatever. Yeah, and
1: so now you do more than just read the text on the podcast, right? Yeah, we we read
0: and explain the text. So just like here on the show, we, we read the whole text. But then we try and understand it and apply it as well.
1: And you've got over 400 chapters of the Bible covered now, isn't that right?
0: Yeah, 435, I believe.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. That is almost 40% of the chapters in the entire Bible. That's awesome. So if someone wants to start using the podcast to help them in their Bible reading resolution, how should they proceed?
0: Just go to the website, uh, endoftheword.ca, and click on Getting Started. And that will show you uh, where to access the plans and all the various resources that are out there to help you and that we can provide. The best way to find everything, though, and to manage it and to use it at the speed and in the order that you want is to download the app, the end of the word app. Uh, the, The app is incredibly simple to use, and it puts all 435 episodes plus all the topical and overview episodes that we've done as well right at your fingertips. So that's definitely the easiest way to make use of the whole catalog of materials.
1: All right, thanks for that. And of course, you can find that Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And watch for a brand new series from Into the Word walking through the book of Ezra releasing right now over at Into the Word. And be sure to join us again right here at Life 100.3 next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your Word